You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Mark Feinstein, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Dave Littlefield played three years of minor league ball in the Phillies and Yankees systems before ending his playing career, ultimately going back to school to earn a degree in marketing and a master's in sports management. Coaching was Littlefield's re-entry into baseball, but he found his true path as a scout, embarking on a career that would lead him up the front office ladder, eventually as the general manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. I had a chance to sit down with Littlefield at the Tigers' spring facility in Lakeland, Florida, before camp shut down due to the coronavirus pandemic. We discussed his scouting days, his years in Montreal and Miami, his lengthy run as the Pirates GM, and much, much more. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tigers Vice President of Player Development, Dave Littlefield. But first, a word from our presenting sponsor, Roman. This past year has shown us that without your health, you have nothing. If you're not well, you can't work, look after yourself, or take care of your family. You can't enjoy the life you've worked so hard to build. That's why you need to prioritize taking care of your long-term health today, before it goes from good to bad to worse. So invest in your long-term health with Forward. Forward is intelligent medicine with a personal touch. Their doctors are dedicated to catching top killers like cancer and heart disease early before it's too late. And catching them early could save you tens of thousands of dollars in the long run. Everyone's health history is different, which is why Forward doctors personalize a health plan with you based on your genetics, lifestyle, and biometrics to achieve long-term results and ensure nothing gets missed. It's time to invest in a doctor that's invested in you. Go to GoForward.com today to protect your future health. That's GoForward.com. GoForward.com. Dave, you grew up in Portland, Maine. Who was your favorite team as a kid? Oh, as everybody is in Maine, Red Sox fan, or at least 95%. uh, Yeah, we were all... Sports fans growing up, and uh, Red Sox dominated the area. I guess if you, unless you had a parent who was from somewhere else and sort of tried to ingrain another team in your head, the Red Sox have that whole New England area pretty well, uh, pretty well established. Yeah, they certainly do, especially northern New England, which Maine's way up there in the north. Doesn't get much more north than that, right? Uh, you were signed out of high school by the Phillies as a minor league free agent, caught for three years in the Phillies and Yankees farm systems before ending your playing career. Was it a tough decision to, to give it up? No, it was their decision, not mine. Uh, you know, normally as things end, particularly early in careers, it's because you got released. I was not a good player and got released three times in a little over three years. So it was a great experience and uh, gave me uh, kind of a background for the future. But um, it was not as a, a real good playing career, for sure. You went back to school, went to UMass, played football there. Uh, you got a degree in marketing, earned a master's in sports management at UMass. As you're going through that process uh, in the sports management program, did you know that getting into a front office baseball career was sort of the direction you wanted to head? No, not at all. At that time, I wanted to continue to play sports, and football was available to me, and I went back and played football. Got hurt, unfortunately, after my first year and tore an ACL. In that day and age, it really was hard to come back, and I tried to come back in rehab, but you know it just wasn't possible. It just didn't work well. So at that time, I'd been coaching youth leagues. I got a couple of younger brothers that currently are in baseball as well, and uh, they were playing, and I thought it would be nice to coach them up and be around them and 
that's how I kind of got started. And then after I got hurt playing football, I was still going to school. So at that time, I really didn't have anything going, and I just basically walked into the coach's office to see if I could help out and coach the catchers was my general idea, and that's, that's how I got started kind of coaching in college. So you were coaching at UMass. You coached three years at Clemson. Uh, you also coached in the Cape Cod League for a year. Did you consider that being sort of your, your path and becoming a full-time coach? Yeah, I think early on I started to like it, and um, – you know, it was a nice outlet for all that competitive juices, particularly that my career's ended so quickly, uh, uh, you know, beyond high school. And basically started coaching and enjoyed that at UMass. I was an assistant coach, got a couple summers in the Cape, and then, uh, you know, realized pretty quick that uh, to get better as a team, you need better players. And that's one of the things I worked hard at was try to get players to come to UMass to help us improve. And, and that got some evidently some recognition as we got better and uh, that's how I got an opportunity to go to Clemson as an assistant coach there uh, for three years and really the same path as I continued to coach really enjoyed it but uh, worked hard to try to get players to come to Clemson and they had a real good program for many years and as um, you know players got as we got better as a team you know people eventually I started getting some feelers on going into scouting. and uh, But at that time, I was really thinking maybe I'd like to be a college coach, and that was really – I never had any kind of thoughts of anything beyond that at that time. You began your front office career with the Tigers as an area scout, East Coast scouting supervisor eventually. How did your, your affiliation with the Tigers first come about? Well, it's an interesting part, and it's kind of the timing and oddities of uh, the past, but uh, it all makes sense. As, as I was out recruiting, you know, meet a lot of scouts at that era. There wasn't the showcase uh, – venues that there are today it was just more American Legion or tournaments around the country and most of my travel was East Coast and so you run into a lot of scouting people and you get to develop relationships from the profession with the professional scouts because they want to know about your players that we had at Clemson or guys that you signed to go there and eventually uh, getting a, a player out of Connecticut named Rico Bronia yes. that uh, was uh, ended up having a very nice major league career to to uh, come to Clemson along with the football people got them interested because Rico was a heck of an athlete as a high school player and played football and then signed a football scholarship uh, to come to Clemson and play baseball as well. And then as time went on going into the draft, he got a lot of attention, was a first-round pick by the Tigers. And the scouting director was someone who at that time I'd become, had a relationship with named Jax Robertson, longtime um, scout in the industry. And um, so kind of things eventually led to him offering me a position and I ended up taking a position with the Tigers at that time. Now you had played baseball obviously played in the minors playing and scouting are very different uh, skills did scouting come pretty easily to you? Well I, I think one of the things that helped is that I just had this great opportunity at UMass and Clemson to work under mentors that allowed me to uh, basically go out and do it on my own and recruit the players so even though it's kind of viewed as recruiting you have to evaluate the players and figure out who you're going to go for and try to recruit and whether you have scholarships or or just where you spend your attention on or which players you spend your attention on that is part of the evaluation is um, knowing who to go after and where the competition is and sometimes they get too good because they head towards the draft and you, you wouldn't be able to get them to come to your school they'd sign so that was a real good precursor and a good practice for he heading into scouting. So there was definitely some changes as you get into the pro re or the reports that are required and, and you know, the profiles and, and the OFPs and, and the 
preferential lists of the scout of the players, but it was it was a very good uh, foundation for doing that in scouting. In 1991, you joined the Expos as a national cross checker and East Coast supervisor. Um, amateur scouting is, is a very tough field. I've had a bunch of scouting directors on here. How much did your experience in college coaching help in terms of being able to go out and, and sort of get a good feel for the amateurs? Well, it helped a lot. Uh, the college coaching did the, you know, the home visits, the amateur scouting. Um, but at that era, we, we, weren't, we weren't really pigeonholed into amateur or pro. Or In that era, we were doing everything. There was very few like special assistants to the GMs or pro scouting directors and those types of titles that there are now in staffs. So it was one of the, the good news, bad news, I guess. And for me, it was good news because I like to work and I like to work in baseball. But you know, we would have amateur scouting responsibilities, but you'd have spring training responsibilities. And even during the season, sometimes advanced scouting or pro scouting responsibilities during the April, May, and early June period that, you know, most of the people would be spending on the amateur uh, players around the country as with the Expos at that time, you know, we weren't staffed as well as others, but it was a great opportunity for a young guy that wanted to learn in a lot of different areas. When you think back to the early 90s or late 80s when you're breaking into the big leagues front office game, could you have ever envisioned how big front offices would get? Well, they've certainly grown dramatically, and, and the, just like I had mentioned about the departments of, of say, pro scouting, uh, you know, currently we get all sorts of reports coming in from our pro scouts and you see whether it's spring training and the request for number of tickets that you know different scouts are going to go to Arizona or Florida or during the season when scouts are visiting. You know, people have staffs of 10, 15, 20, maybe 25 pro scouts, whereas at, I think back to those early days in the Expos and Eddie Haas, a longtime baseball guy, was kind of the only pro scout, but he was also seeing amateur scouts too, so he wasn't even devoting full-time to pro scouting. So... Staffs have grown dramatically. Front office staffs have, have grown dramatically. I just was looking at some media guides recently, and you know, one team has three assistant general managers with no other responsibilities listed. So, you know, some of those back a little bit of ways. Even there was most some teams didn't have assistant general right. managers. So, you know, it has changed. It's really it's good opportunity for many people. So. Uh, kudos to all those who have those positions. You went on to become the director of player development for Montreal, held that job for three years. That job was obviously much different 25, 30 years ago. Back then, what was the biggest challenge of running a farm system? Well, for me at that time, I was I had been scouting all my professional career, and I hadn't been to spring training since I was a player, so there was a lot of things that I, I didn't know about. Uh, and really, the challenge is getting to know the staff, understanding how the whole logistic flow goes during spring training and and that the time period I came in was kind of instruct end of instructional league so I got to know the staff a little bit but uh, you know knowing what was urgent and what you could wait on and uh, was some of the big challenges because at that time everything was urgent because I didn't know the difference between it but you leaned on the staff a lot and we had some good staff members that were coordinators at that time, guys like Jim Benedict and Rick Sofield, Pat Rossler, and some others that have been in the baseball game a long time. And uh, they were very, very helpful. I had some relationships with them. And the ones I didn't, I got to know much better. But uh, they were all good at their craft and uh, helped me out a great deal. And that was key thing. After seven years with the Expos, you moved to the Marlins in 1998 as their assistant general manager uh, under Dave Dombrowski. You received an offer, I believe, for the same position with Billy Bean and the A's, I think, on the day you were interviewing with the Marlins, 
what made you choose Florida over Oakland? Uh, really a lot of thought and hard to say exactly, but I, I just thought uh, at that time, you know, Dave was an executive and had a lot of experience and, you know, Billy was a good friend and is a good friend and, you know, kind of came up similar to me, I guess, in, in a lot of ways. And you know, he was a better player, certainly, but uh, was a scout a long time and before he moved into the front office uh, full time. And I just thought some of the uh, skill sets that Dave had were some that I, I hadn't experienced. And, you know, just at the time, that was my feeling. And, and it worked out great. I mean, Billy's done an incredible job for sure, but it worked out. Dave was a great guy to work for, and I learned a lot, and was a great mentor for uh, teaching me the front office and all the ins and outs, and had you know, I had tremendous experience in the front office, and uh, it helped me a great deal in those ways. Kind of following up on that, you worked with Dave for three years in Florida. What was sort of your biggest takeaway? Your your the thing you learned the most working for him? Well, there's a lot, and it's hard to say just one, but um, you know, he taught me really how to managed the whole operation on the baseball side and also the, the commitment to, to uh, the job. Uh, he's fully invested in to, uh, uh, you know, what's going on in the whole organization, not only are the, the demands of the major league side with uh, certainly high, more high-profile issues, but he's, he's got a good handle on what's happening in player development, what's happening with amateur draft and scouting, and also on the international side. And yet is a you know savvy manager of, of the whole front office operation. So it's uh, well-rounded, and I, I think it uh, overall is you know, the whole package of that, and more so than just one area. 2001 midseason, you're hired by the Pirates as their general manager. That was a team that had gone eight years without a winning record, obviously needed some, some rebuilding situation there. What was the biggest challenge running your own team for the first time? Because that's a chair that, that comes with a lot more responsibility than than pretty much any other job in the game yeah um the biggest challenge is obviously and always is getting better players that's the key you get better players and you know you generally tend to win more games so um crazy how that works right (laughs) (laughs) well it sounds simple but obviously anybody who's been in that area understands how difficult it is but as you know you look at every opportunity whether it's waiver claims or international signings or amateur draft, trades, you know, you every you're just putting attention to every area possible to see where you can get where you can upgrade and get better players. And um, that that's the, the biggest challenge. I mean, obviously you go through many other things where staffing and and um, you know, you're trying to take some people that you've experienced and worked with in the past that you think are are good in their field and try to bring them aboard and you know, you learn along the way. And that, fortunately, one of the things that happened with when I was with the Marlins that was really a great experience is some point, and I don't remember what year, but Dave Dombrowski became the president of the, the Marlins, including overseeing the baseball operations. And I had, I guess, been with him maybe a year or so, and, and he kind of came to me and said, hey, I need you to do some more duties, kind of similar to the GM does, but, you know, obviously I'll make the final call. So it gave me great experience to to for a year or two whatever amount of time it was to kind of get a feel for you know what does happen in that seat and and clearly Dave made the final call but um, that experience helped me a great deal leading into the Pirates and just not with it wasn't really a drastic transition even though I could see it being that way because of um, you know if I went from just a pure assistant GM but um, that helped in a lot of ways but you know staffing and players are the two most important things and the things where 
you know, you spent the most time trying to figure out and get better at. You had spent a decade with the Expos and Marlins, two small market teams. Did that experience help you going to Pittsburgh in another small market, sort of knowing what to expect yeah. with that situation? Yeah, it certainly did. It, you know, you just try to be as efficient as you can with what you have. And, and the Marlins in those days, and the Marlins kind of evolved a little bit because at one time they were significant spenders, and in, in the era that I was there, they weren't. And, and it, so it taught you, you know, to get as, uh, the bang for your buck in every place possible. Uh, so, you know, we, I was in tune to that, and, uh, you know, it certainly helps. But, hey, every situation's a little different and, and is challenging. But ultimately, in the end of the day, we didn't get enough good players, and that's where they made the decision to, you know, move on and find someone else to do the job. And that's, you know, that's how it goes. But, that you know, that's the reality of the, the small market, and, you know, try to do the best you can with what you've got. A few months after you took over as GM, you made a series of hires, brought some people over who had worked with you at the Marlins, one of those people was Al Avila. He's now the GM of the Tigers, obviously. What has impressed you about Al throughout the years? Well, he's fully committed to his career, just similar like I was mentioning about Dave Dombrowski. Is Al's all in. He's worked his whole life. He, you know, his dad was the patriarch of uh, the Dominican academies and in the Dominican Republic. So he's been doing it since he was a kid and knows all facets of the game. He's got a good feel for things. He's a great people person. Uh, he's got a great eye for talent and, you know, someone that just, hey, as life goes, you kind of match up with certain people. And him and I have a certain bond and match up in a certain way as far as whether it's life or baseball and those types of things and on philosophically on the same page. I'm going to ask this question knowing fully that hindsight is twenty twenty. So your first full season with Pittsburgh, you have the number one pick in the draft. You guys take Brian Bullington, wound up pitching 26 games in the majors. Of the six picks after that were B.J. Upton, Zach Greinke, and Prince Fielder. Uh, Greinke and Prince went six and seven, so the other top five teams also passed on them. How much pressure is there to get the pick right when you have that one-one pick? Well, when you have a high pick, you got to hit on them, and that's you know one of the failings in retrospect that uh, with my era in the Pirates, you, you you know that's where premium talent is, and certainly everybody in the industry knows that you got to particularly your first five picks, you got to do a good job on. But when you're picking up high in the, in the first round, whether it's 1-1 or, you know, the fifth pick of the draft or whatever it is. So, um, you know, Brian was a good-looking young pitcher in, in college. And, you know, as pitching goes, it's always a little hairy because of the attrition rate. And, you know, it didn't work out as well as we hoped. So in retrospect, obviously, you know, you'd, you'd make a different decision. But, you, you know, you've learned over time. you got to get back on the saddle and uh, – and keep working at it so uh, you know that's that's how it goes how many years do you think it takes to truly evaluate a whole draft and even individual picks because as i was doing research for this a story or two from 2007 where people were among other things criticizing you guys drafting neil walker in 2004 saying ah oh, he hasn't doesn't appear like he's on a track and we all know that neil walker ended up being a very good major league player so at what like how many years into a draft i guess part of that depends on if they're a high school player or a college yeah. player but when do you start to evaluate, okay, this is who he is? Well, I think, you know, probably fairly somewhere into the second year. You, you know, you, this is what we do, and we've been doing it most of our lives. And there's indicators all around you, whether it's the metrics or just your eyes and your experience of watching players. Uh, you're right. In some cases, whether it's the Latin American sign or the, the high school draft or the college draft, there's a little different view as to where they're at in their as their physical development goes their emotional maturity but uh 
you know, somewhere in their second year. But I know it takes a little longer as to look back and, and say, okay, which drafts panned out and, you know, who's got what war or whatever you want to use as an evaluative tool, you know, five years, eight years later to see, you know, how it panned out and then, you know, who else was around there that you could have picked that you didn't or who you were on and that type of stuff. But um, I, I think most people in the industry, that may be the view kind of through the media when you get it, you talk about it, but as it goes from day one when they get on the field, I'm looking at them trying to figure them out. So that's just the nature of, you know, how you're involved in the business. Fans and media love to go back and look at old drafts and say, oh, my God, I can't believe they passed on this guy and this guy. Do you ever do that in hindsight? I mean, the, the 2006 draft stood out. You guys had the four pick. You took Brad Lincoln uh, ahead of Lincecum, Kershaw, and Scherzer. Obviously, nobody knows at the time of the draft that those three guys are going to go on, especially they weren't. none of them were. If anybody knew where they were going to have their careers, you know, Kershaw and Scherzer would have been one, two in that draft, right? Um, did you ever go back to drafts years after to look at them and try to, you know, take lessons, good or bad? Absolutely. And that's, I think... Uh... I think anybody that's involved in the business that's, that's risen to any level will tell you the same thing, is you're always self-analyzing, whether it's your own decisions or your staff's decisions, and that's part of how you evaluate your staff. So uh, we certainly do. I assume it almost sounds like, like the mindset of a poker player where they the big wins, they don't remember the details. It's the, the bad beats that sit there and say, that was a bad one. You know, you sort of... If you did a good job, you were supposed to do a good job, but the bad ones are the ones that sort of stay with you. Yeah, I think most people in the business will tell you, and this happens in a variety of ways, that the the lows are lower than the highs are high. And I don't know, that, and maybe that's just a trait that um, you learn maybe more from your mistakes sometimes than your, your successes. It's easy to deal with success. It's always challenging to deal with failure, and you, but you know, you gotta learn to deal with it and, and move forward. and. You know, flush it out, as they say, but learn from it because uh, there is meaning to it and, and you can get better as time goes on. So uh, I think we, I can say personally I do that, and most people do, I think. One of the great successes uh, of your Pittsburgh drafts was in 2005. You guys took Andrew McCutcheon with the number 11 pick. You were no longer in Pittsburgh at the time he got to the majors, but as you're watching his career develop and he wins an MVP and he helps bring the Pirates back to the postseason, is there a sense of pride in knowing that you played a role in getting him there to begin with? You know, they're just similar to what you had asked earlier is that you you tend to move on from the ones that hit on and then, you you know, you try to learn from the other ones. I, I you, as, the, as working in the business goes, you you're spend a lot of time in your own job and that's really what I focus most of my attention on is the job I have. And, uh, you know, you're aware of the rest of the industry and what's going on. Certainly, uh, he did a great job and Ed Creech and his staff made a great selection there in picking uh, and recommending McCutcheon. Uh, because he had a heck of a career and, and helped Pittsburgh do well. But, uh, you know, that's to the extent of it. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, but, uh, you know, it's nice for all those people involved for sure. You made some very good trades with the Pirates, acquired guys like Jason Bay, Oliver Perez, Xavier Nady. I've heard from other executives that for every deal that happens, there were probably a dozen deals being discussed that didn't happen. How tough is it to actually make a trade? Well, there's, there's definitely challenges. Uh, you know, there's so many issues, whether it's financial, medical, that have a lot of layers to them and where you match up with. So there are a lot of discussions that go on and a lot of ideas that go back and forth. So, you know, what the person told you in regards to there's so much back and forth that it's even hard to, hard to evaluate how many potential trades are there. But, 
you know, you talk all year too, and it's not sometimes people get focused on the trading deadline or the winter meetings as the key periods when trades take place. But most of the time when those get consummated, there's months and months of discussion in regards to players that are involved and, and you know, the timing of how it ends up working out uh, is rarely comes together quickly. It can, but uh, there certainly is a lot of discussion and, and basically all year. You were in this business before there was email, before there was cell phones. How much easier has it gotten in terms of just the communication internally with other clubs? How, how has basic technology, not even, I'm not even talking about TrackMan or, or Rapsodo, basic everyday technology, how has that changed the ability to do your jobs more efficiently? It certainly makes you, everybody available at all times, and that, I guess, makes things a lot easier. Um, we may not sleep as much, but... Uh, <laughs> None of us do. Yeah. But no, that's, you have access to everybody at all hours of the day and night, and you know, East Coast, West Coast, and all around the world, actually. So it definitely does, and certainly we everybody's using whatever's available. So uh, it's you know technology has really impacted everything, including baseball. I know some old-time executives said they couldn't even fathom the idea of making a trade via text, and yet that happens now. You know, It's uh, yeah. changing of the times. Early in September of 2007, you're let go by the Pirates. All these years later, when you look back at your, your tenure as GM, how do you assess that that time? A great experience, a lot of good people, but end of the day, we didn't get it done. And that's uh, the nature of, you know, how I approach things and uh, the nature of the business is, you know, I, I understand that if at some point you don't make enough, tra- uh, get enough traction to show improvement and, and hope for the future, then people are going to make a change. And that's the way it is in every major sport and every corporation. So, um, you know, that's that's my view on it. It was a lot of good times and a lot of great people. But, uh, you know, as the profession goes, that's the nature of it. You kind of answered this before McCutcheon, but six years after you left Pittsburgh, they get back to the postseason. And when you looked at that roster, there were several key players that you brought in, whether it was McCutcheon, Neil Walker, Tony Watson, Starling Marte. Were you watching that? Did you watch that wild card game? Was there a part of you that felt like, even though you had not been there for six years, that there was a piece of you in that team? Well, I think, you know, you acknowledge that there's a there's a piece of um, a lot of people that had to do with that. And, and certainly you got to give credit to the next group that came in, the majority of the credit. But there's a lot of people in player development and scouting and the front office that had a hand in getting the, helping get those players um, to the major leagues or to, into the Pirates system. But, uh, again, when you're in the business working at it, a lot of people, and myself included, spend most of your attention on the job you have but obviously we've all had a lot of interaction with different people throughout our careers and you're rooting for those guys to do well and and your friends to accomplish whatever world series titles and that sort of thing but uh you know you're you're spending most of your time on the club you're working with so a few months after you leave pittsburgh you get hired in chicago jim hendry hires you as a scout and special assistant to the gm a job which as you noted before didn't exist early in your career uh you were in Chicago for seven years, all the way to the Theo Epstein, Jed Hoyer regime. What stands out most to you from, from that stretch in Chicago? Well, the, you know, the, the playoff teams and that in the, with Lou Pinella and the Cubs and you know, feeling like we were close and, and feeling disappointed that it didn't come together like we were hoping. And um, you know, then obviously going through the transition of uh, uh, the change and you know, working with Theo and Jed was a great experience. And... You know, it was, there were a lot of good people that uh, I enjoyed getting to know and, and uh, develop friendships with the Cubs. And, 
a great ownership group with the Ricketts. Um, you know, so kind of one of those things that uh, you really enjoyed the experience, even though it kind of quasi two different regimes. But uh, Jim's a great guy and longtime friend and, uh, you know, always rooting for him and appreciate the opportunity to go over there and work with him. In October of 2014, your old friend Dave Dombrowski hires you back with the Tigers as a major league scout. What was it like coming back to Detroit all those years later and reuniting with both Dave and Al? Well, felt comfortable just relative to working for people that are kind of on the same page philosophically, and uh, that is something that over the career is I've been very fortunate. Most of my career I've been able to do that, and so it worked out very well. Uh, you know, the familiarity with Detroit and that sort of stuff, a lot of changes, a lot of different people relative to back in 88, but, uh, you know, you're now more experienced and had a variety of hands and doing different things, so it was a great opportunity to, to come back to Detroit and, you know, always enjoy uh, and appreciate those guys. A year after you rejoined the Tigers, you were promoted to vice president of player development. You had run a farm system years earlier, uh, and now you're doing it again. We talked before about sort of how different that job had become. Um, what when you when you embark on that job again? What are the biggest challenges? And I guess was it sort of I guess you'd you'd run a team at that point, so you knew kind of what those differences were going to be. But when you actually get into that job. What were the what were the biggest differences in terms of now running a farm system in 2015? Well, I think kind of what you alluded to earlier is that the staffing has grown dramatically. You know, people have a hard time understanding that we, the Tigers, we have nine minor league teams. We've got, you know, 250 to 70 players in the, in the States and in the Dominican Republic. So it's a big undertaking. It's you know, position that you need to be a leader, you need to be an administrator, you need to be organized and, and delegate. So um, that's kind of the role, and there's a lot of balls in the air when you're doing that. However, as you would mentioned, it, having had the experience of having done it for a couple other teams, along with the responsibility of being a GM, gave you a, a lot of experience, as I referred back to, to know what's urgent to get done and what we can wait on a little bit. And and again, philosophically, we're in line with the major league team always and what Al Avila and, and Ron Gardenhire are, are, you know, want to do as far as how they play the game and rules, policies, and cutoffs and relays. And, and so uh, we're here to help the major leagues in any way possible. And all those experiences gave me, um, you know, a lot of uh, insight into how the job's done. But it's a, it's a big job relative to there's a lot of numbers, and you got to have good front office staffs and, you know, the coordinators and rovers and some people out there that have had experience. And fortunately with the Tigers, we do. We've got some real good people here that's very helpful to the job. You mentioned nine affiliates, over 250 players. I assume that if I plucked a random minor leaguer's name from your system out right now and said, how's he doing? You could tell me. Maybe not in full detail, but, but you could tell me something about where that player is. How do you, obviously you have a lot of people working under you who are delivering reports and updating you. Yeah. But how do you keep track of that many teams and that many players and feel like you have a, a grip on what's going on? Well, I think, you know, you prioritize things. No one is Superman and is going to know every detail of every player. And you you have to know the better players and, and the ones that were drafted higher or signed for bigger bonuses or are perfor performing better. The ones that are on the radar for the – 40-man roster or the major league people like or 
all those types of things. So it's, it's really kind of prioritizing things, but it's always cycling through, you know, another 50 to 60 guys every year are coming in the system, whether it's the draft or coming over from the Dominican Academy that we've signed out of Latin America. So, you know, that kind of flushes out 50 or 60 more and bring in 50 or 60 more. So it, it's never ending, and, but it's part of, like, the sports business in some ways is you, you've learned over time to know players and know names and, and know their style of game and their body types and that sort of thing. And so it's something you spend a lot of time doing, and you're on the field and you travel around to all the affiliates, you travel to the Dominican Republic, so you can get to know the staffs, get to know the players. But realistically, depending on the player, you're going to talk to the staff member that's involved with the most to get his feeling in regards to you know what they want, the questions that they're asking, and and to kind of help your thoughts as to what that player is. You once said that it's easier to develop a first-round talent than a player who's taken in the later rounds of the draft. We've seen plenty of guys in the late rounds develop into very good big leaguers. Is that generally the result of that player working harder? Is it sometimes a case of scouts having just missed something about them or they weren't as big a prospect, so maybe they weren't seen as much or they were some, some remote area? Uh, what, what's sort of what's the, When you've seen later round guys develop into big players, is there any trend or any sort of link that you've seen happen there? I would say probably you know, it's one of the great things in sports is people develop at different times in their lives. Not everybody's finished developing at 18 or at 22 or – 25 even it can happen at, at all sorts of times and, and yet it's there's less of them that develop later you know most of the time there's a general age period that the physically developing and then they come together from a you know in our sport baseball but uh you know you read about it all the time however as the draft goes in general the higher rounds are where the talent is and as you get down later there's guys with less tools however there's sometimes Injuries that are involved, you know, in this day and age, there still are some guys that aren't seen as much as some others. And um, but, you know, sometimes there's problem children or other issues that are going on in people's lives at a younger age that kind of, you know, pull them out of the out of the main uh, circuit. But, uh, you know, it's it's a very interesting part about sports as to why you have so many rounds or you read about different players in all sports that kind of for whatever reason, weren't as well-known and yet have turned out to be a heck of a player. And everybody's got examples of them, which makes it fun. I know fans don't always love the idea of when a team is in a rebuild, people at the big league level, sort of the season might become a grind. As a player development guy, knowing that you are overseeing the players who are hopefully going to be the ones to lead the Tigers back to the top, is it exciting to see some of these guys developing and, and knowing that a guy like Casey Mize or a guy like Matt Manning may end up being, uh, you know, yeah, the next is. great stars. Absolutely. It's, it's very exciting when we talk about that as a staff. And we tell the players it's a great, great time to be a Detroit Tiger if you're in the minor leagues <laughs> because we're going to get lots of opportunity. And, and the, right now as we look at the team, and you know, it's Turnbull and Jimenez and Griner and, and all the guys coming up, you know, the names of Mize and Manning and Fiedo and, and Scoobal and – there's just they're going to get lots of opportunities so uh, we understand that as a staff we understand that as a department and um, you know we're looking forward to seeing these guys not only get opportunity but more traction and help us get in turn a better record and improve at the major league level and win a championship at some point the tigers i believe are the last major league team that holds an annual tryout camp uh people can just come in and, and try out what's the philosophy behind doing that every year because in my head all I'm envisioning is like that opening scene in Major League when 
you know, Willie Mays Hayes gets out of the bed and starts running the dash. And, and you know, it just seems like yeah. a, a fun day. But is there, a, is there a philosophy behind trying to maybe uncover this, uh, you know, lost talent that nobody knew about? Yeah, I mean, times have changed and the, the, where that was more popular years ago, like when I was a kid myself, that going to trial camps with either the scouting bureau or individual scouts uh, was fairly common if you're a ball player. Um, that certainly has dried up. We've got the showcases and travel teams and all that sort of stuff going on. But, you know, we, we're here in Lakeland. We've been for, here for a long, long time, and it's um, an opportunity to give some people a chance. Maybe there's some local people that, you know, feel that they haven't been seen or didn't get a shot. And we generally try to gear it towards the ex-professionals or uh, maybe independent league players or maybe the college player that feels like he wants to give it one more chance. But sometimes, you know, some others – sneak in and get an opportunity to get out there and run around and we try to make it a full day so that everybody feels comfortable that they got an opportunity and we're seen and so it's it's a it's a win-win and Al Avila you know really feels like it's a good thing to do so uh, we continue to do it. In researching these podcasts I always come across one or two things that sort of jump out at you as being a little odd. There's a PNC Park napkin with your autograph available on eBay for four dollars and ninety-five cents <laughs> And it's listed under condition as used. Good deal? Maybe overpriced. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's some weird stuff out there on the, on the internet. Uh, two years ago, Al said of you, quote, he's a guy that should not, be, not just be scouting because he's a leader of men. He can lead, he can manage, and I always visualized him as a guy that if I ever had a position, he would be the one guy that I would want in charge of a department. Do you have aspirations to get back into a GM chair someday? Well, I, I, as I said earlier, I spend a lot of time on the job I have because of the number of staff and players I have, but uh, uh, and really want to focus in on helping the Tigers get back to championship level teams. But as time goes on, you know, we'll see how everything shakes out. You know, you can have lots of aspirations, but you don't uh, apply for those kind of jobs. People have to come and look for you. So we'll see where things go. But I, I really enjoy the job I have. Dave, I appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. Okay, Mark. Thank you. Many thanks to Dave Littlefield for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. In our next episode, I'll be joined by Indians assistant GM, Carter Hawkins. We'll discuss his lengthy run with the Indians, what he's learned from Mark Shapiro, Cleveland's incredible front office stability, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. Stay safe, everybody. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.